Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room, where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. So I am incredibly excited to welcome you, Helena Bonham Carter, onto our podcast. You are a global superstar, an Emmy and BAFTA award-winning actress, who I am unbelievably excited to be talking to today. I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but I know it's going to be good. Well, can I can I just say I'm really, really chuffed to be on this because for me, privately, you've written handbooks for my life and you help me live. Oh. And not only am I an avid daily follower uh, of your incredibly practical and helpful Instagram but I've read all of your books and from way back now. So I feel I've had a relationship that has, you have no idea about it. We've been friends for years, Julia. <laughs> but grief works, this too shall pass. And then lately, every family has a story. And I go back and I glean from it. And you're my teacher. You really are my teacher. And I, I think you're a godsend. And... I thank you for every jewel that your brain concocts and for your compassion. I think I might cry now. You can cry. It's um, a safe place. It's, <laughs> it's not meant to be this way around. Well, the part, I, I will say this, the challenge of being, there's one, I mean, I've had difficulty thinking of which challenge to pick for this, but one challenge... Um, of being well known is that one is entirely sick, gets very, very sick about talking about oneself. I had a challenge about thinking which challenge I should pick. I've got you a menu so you can choose because I thought... Okay. And I think the only use about sharing challenges and difficulties and any kind of pain is so that it helps other people go through it. Exactly. Shall I just read you one little poem about my IT challenge? This is a micro. There's micro and macro challenges. Okay, let's start with micro. And I think a lot of the day, living, first of all, living is hard. That is, that is a, I think, full stop. Like, like, a meta. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. And inside it, one of the many things that um, I think a day can throw at one, and it can sometimes be an assault course, for me, anything IT and there's this poem that has given me much solace. I don't know if you know Mary Oliver. I love Mary Oliver. Yeah, she's my, yes, my goddess. She's my goddess too. Uh, do you know this poem called What I Can Do? No. Tell me. Okay, good. Thank God for that. Yes, I'm giving something to you. <laughs> okay, it's very short. <laughs> yes. It's called Mischief. Mischief is paramount in life. Okay, what I can do. It's very short, by the way, so you don't have to tune out. The television has two instruments that control it. I get confused. The washer asks me, do you want regular or delicate? Honestly, I just want clean. Everything is like that. I won't even mention cell phones. I can turn on the light of the lamp beside my chair, wear a book, is waiting. But that's about it. <laughs> oh, yes. And I can strike a match and make fire. That says it all for me. It's Isn't it genius? Oh, my God. That should be made into wallpaper. Yes. Okay, we're going to do merchandise. We will do merchandise. It's something I find everything ramifies into complications in modern life, you know, and choice. That's a micro one. 
<laughs> so if I can take my role back. Okay, you can try. <laughs> Let's see how long it lasts. I can try. Yeah. Okay, not long. Yeah. When you were listing your challenges, let's get a list of what they were. So there's the micro of IT. I mean, there's the acknowledgement that life is difficult. And I think that is a good one to start with, because I think if we think it isn't difficult, we somehow feel that we're failing. Whereas if we know like life is difficult and days can feel like assault courses, like you said, that is a sort of more prepared state of going for the day. Absolutely. And I think it also helps us to combat reasons why what you call the shitty committee or I called it my when I was 15, I identified that I was I had a self-destructive part. I called it the SDP and um, which was that's quite sophisticated thinking for a 15 year old. I was much more sophisticated when young than I'm old. I've gone backwards. I really have. Um, (laughs) And I was born old. And I think that was slightly problematic for me. But learning to live with my SDP and your shitty committee, that's a challenge. So I think I've spent a lot of my life thinking of ways to combat it. And one of those things is to get there before they do. So saying like, hang on, life is difficult. Before you tell me that I'm stupid, it's like, it's not my fault, you know? I mean, SDP is a 15-year-old and you just said a whole mass of things that I really want to go into, that you were old when you were young and then you're young now that you're old. Mm -hmm. But I also felt that when you were young, there were things that happened that may have arrested your development. Definitely. Like your mum's breakdown, like your dad's illness, changing school. I think I had to deal with very big things very young. So in a way, maybe I didn't have the space to be a child. And I remember, not through anybody's fault, just the the fault of life and, as they say, shit happens. And I remember when I was about 13, which was interesting enough, when I became an actor, and I think it's a total response to what happened to my father, I felt a sense of wanting to stay young. And I think that's also something that wanting to keep my childhood, keep and prolong the childhood, that somehow the innocence had already been, had already been exploded. And um, so it took me a long time as an adult if I have become an adult, that's questionable, to grow up. Having said that, it's never one thing, is it? I mean, genetically, my granny, if you met my grandmother, not Violet, but my mother's mother, she was somebody who was, you know, she was 89 and she was seven years old. So, you know, she had a great, very young disposition. My mother has a very young and wise disposition. So there's a lot that we're handed down. And then the more and more that we hear about transgenerational stuff that we get handed down, um, given what, you know, has happened to them. I remember being very, very, very young and thinking I am young. I am older than my grandmother. Gosh. I remember, which was not a laugh a minute, reading uh, at Speech and Drama in, in South Hampstead. We had to pick a poem and um you know learn it and recite it and looking back on it it's completely barking because i think i was eight or nine and i chose john clare's i am yet what i am no one cares or no blimey i was a laugh a minute as an eight-year-old but i had this weight of sadness i think or the germans call it is it the weltschmerz or something i've just been learning german compound words yeah i was born with it And I think that's helped me um, inform, you know, perhaps why I I can bring something to parts because I've been here before. Why have the weight of the exhaustion of being? I think that's maybe why I go to sleep for most of my life. And that's something that I do often. When in doubt, I go and do, I have a snooze. I have a horizontal. I need to try and track where we've gone it's a challenge well I mean the sense that I'm making of it that is fascinating and I think other people will hear themselves in what you're saying is that we have a very simplistic view of ourselves but actually we are very complex beings and what makes us me is what we inherit genetically so from both sides of your grandparents and your parents what happens to us, like your mum's breakdown when you were five and your dad becoming, was he profoundly disabled? He was in a wheelchair from a simple operation, wasn't he? Profoundly, yeah. From 50, yeah, that went wrong. Yeah, From 50. When you were 13, 
and somehow you were born with a wisdom that was a sounds like it slightly was too much when you were young but you wanted to hold on to your childhood so you developed many parts one was this self-critical part mm. which feels quite cruel but another one was a a young part that could play and be an actress and be a different different versions of yourself but your defense against all of this energy that's inside you is to go to sleep so do you retreat I've probably missed something. No, you haven't missed anything. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. There was two things, and this is part of the problem is when I get scattered, is which which path to choose. My response, I think, to what happened to Dad and to my mum and this wish to prolong my childhood was me running away and becoming an actor because I thought I could create my own reality and I could control that. So I could step away if life and... I remember being really quite stubborn at 13 when it happened to Dad, saying this is not going to defeat us. And my father, it didn't defeat my father in spirit. And it certainly wasn't going to defeat me in my sense of optimism. And I just thought it's up to me what to make of it. Hmm. Um, actually, there's a quote above my desk which says, it's our task to make music of what remains. I love that. Has that been a guiding influence? Totally. And I've got another one, which is put magic in today. That's from my mother. Oh. It's our choice. We're given what, what happens to us. And there's a huge amount of luck that has been come my way and privilege, including the actual people that ended up being my parents. I really strongly believe that has been my biggest privilege, as well as financial, as well as so much in that department and material. But the quality of people and how, it, and frankly, intact those two people are. I mean, they went through their own journeys, but they were meant to be parents. You know, not everyone. And I often question that of myself. What does that mean, they were meant to be parents? It was their gift to be. I mean, they knew... I didn't, I felt they did a good job. Sir Nicholas Winton was an amazing man and I played his mother and I was reading about Sir Nicholas Winton and he lived 106 and he did an extraordinary thing with his life. Wow. He saved all the Jews or lots of some Jews. He saved 450, yes, children from Prague and he was asked what was his secret to his long life and he said, well, number one, you choose your parents, which is obviously an acknowledgement of him to say, I got lucky. And we do get lucky. We get in birth, the moment of birth, we're so lucky where we land, which family we land, which position in that family we land, the geography of where we are. So much is random luck. Random. Or not. Then that's the other thing, is that the older I've got, when lost, and... Or I become more and more intrigued by where I've come from and what I've been handed down and with a feeling of I have to fulfil the purpose of this short time that we're all given and what am I meant to be doing here? I'm not always this serious, by the way. <laughs> but, but it's an important question. What, what are you meant to be doing here? What are we meant to be doing with this time? I mean, are we meant to be learning how to do IT or do we just say, oh, that's not my gift, you know? Do you have an idea of what your purpose is? I'm getting there. I don't think it's acting. Acting has been my luxury and it's my hobby almost and it's my play. Um, it's my way of coping. And I love profoundly um, and I feel so lucky that I've got the chance to do it, the, the chance of being other people. <laughs> I mean, it's um, it's such a relief. It stops you being scattered, doesn't it? Because it gives you a script where you have a narrative and a line where you're going and you can inhabit that person and you know where you want to get to, whereas life is much more messy and chaotic. Exactly. I've got a frame and I've got a sense of definition. Yeah. And I've also very got clear boundaries. I think I can... I'm naturally quite curious and I'm naturally quite generous, if I may say, without that's an unlikely thing for me yes. to compliment myself. But I can be pulled in many, many directions and get very excited. And that's I think that's why then I suddenly have to go to bed because I exhaust myself. 
There's something in being said that when one doesn't know necessarily what one's meant to do is to look at what you've been handed and where you've come from. And I do think death can be a real interrupter and a bugger of what, bugger in that way in that it's interrupted our parents, our grandparents, or whoever, were, they were doing something. So there's something that we're handed out in our DNA. Sometimes it's something we have to get rid of and say, sorry, this is not mine, just go away. And other times you go, actually, this is something that... I can fulfill. So tiny thing, like as an actor, you get choices and you go like, shall I do it or not? And that's a challenge sometimes. It's great to have the choice, but then there's the responsibility of making the right decision. So for instance, the Winton story came up. It wasn't an extraordinarily big part, but it was an extraordinary story and it completely tied in with what my grandmother and my grandfather on both sides did with their Second World War. So I felt in travelling back to that time, I was meeting them. And then there's another funny thing that happens is that when I act people from different times, and a lot of the time I am in the past, professionally, I find I start encountering, or people pop up. It's like being a hologram and my grandmother pops up. Like something, I goes like, well, who's that? And I say, oh, it's my Auntie Lily, or that's my... So there's a lot that we're receptacle, we're carriers of people who've gone before. And that's exciting because I'm all for, you know, I find death so, so heartbreaking because we feel it's final. It's so final on many levels. But any semblance that something carries on, that an energy carries on or that there's a continuity, then I, you know, I, I love pursuing that and championing that. I find that a kind of inspiring thought that when, you know, you had very distinguished grandparents and parents on both sides. And rather than kind of looking at them from a distance and feeling daunted by them yeah. or kind of overshadowed by them, it feels like you've, through your parts and through who you are, you've been able to step back and embrace them and let them become part of you. So you've integrated them through different pathways. And I guess what would be interesting to explore is how that might be then passed down to Nell and Billy, your two children. Yeah. What's it like being your child? Well, them? that is a very good question. It, it's a tricky one because I've got a lot to say about that, but I don't want to sort of cross, I don't want to talk about them out of turn, you know, and... Um, or for them. Or for them. It's only recently that I thought, oh, my God, it's difficult to see yourself objectively. And I, me as a mother or what people project onto me is very different from me. And that's the thing of having somebody famous, is that you aren't necessarily any of what other people think of you. You tend to be this projection of lots of people's others' opinions of you. And I think in order to survive being well-known, very quickly you've got to recognise it really has very little to do with you. People will come up when you go like, well, that's their... Well, that's what they need me to be. And it might be negative too. A lot of the time it is negative. And that was quite a hard challenge when I was younger, was having a lot of judgmental negative opinion to deal with and keeping, before I had a sense of self, keeping my confidence intact. It was difficult to grow up, actually, because I was young. I was I was 18 when it all happened. Yeah. And... Um, it's kind of what, what I recognise is so toxic about the Instagram and the social media is just when young people are forming themselves, they're making themselves vulnerable to strangers' opinions. It really can make their own shitty committee triumphant with a within a second, you know, drown. That's so psychologically complicated, isn't it? You know, it's hard enough navigating one's own relationship with oneself. And then how one has relationships with others, which is how we kind of live with a sense of love and connection in the world. But then being famous means that you have endless and limitless projections that are onto you, some negative, some positive. But also you had them before you were even developmentally mature. And so working that out for you about how to protect yourself rather than ingesting them and what you're talking about Instagram is that people do they take them in and then it fucks with their head basically and who they are but it sounds like you've done quite a lot of work to work out 
okay, that's them, that's their, what they need me to be, or as Jung said, you know, you put on to the other person what you most don't like or what you most like about yourself. It's nothing to do with the person. Well, it's like the Daily Mail, frankly, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the Daily Mail is the shitty committee in, in publication, I find. So it can be yes. so toxic and so automatically judgmental and so vile. So when I'm having a shitty committee moment, uh, and there are certain things that triggers, you know, get the shitty committee to go in chorus. I mean, really, particularly if I have to watch myself something. I mean, that's not something that any actor, I think, would, would pretty much identify with. Watching oneself certainly brings my shitty committee into a huge chorus of triumph of, <laughs> you know, of... Uh, so you can never watch yourself? I have to watch myself because I feel like it's an inverted narcissism because if I don't watch myself, then I don't see everybody else's work. Film making is a team effort. And there's a lot of, at play of many, many people's skills. And that's kind of what I love about it. Mm. A lot of what I love about it is there's this group, and I find quite touching, is there's a group of people with all these disparate talents, totally disparate sound, design, camera, um, pretending to be people, makeup, hair, and they're all coming together to tell one story. And it's like a mad dance, too. We're all trying to dance in sync, all to the same tune. That's up to the director or the conductor, in a way. So I force myself. And also, I am one thing I am really good at in the acting department is... <laughs> I love this. The, the one me. thing I will absolutely say, hand on heart, and say positively is that I'm really good at something called ADR. So ADR is the, te is the term in the biz, which is called additional dialogue recording. So you get the chance. Well, sometimes you have to do it. At the end of a film, like some months later, they'll be putting the film together. They've edited it. And then eventually they have to come around to doing the sound. A lot of the sound that was on the original day is not usable because there's a plane or interconnects between two different takes. So they don't match or so many different things so you get the chance of doing a clean track and so they'll say could you do that speech again or that line or that word and it's all patchwork filmmaking is all a massive patchwork of moments snatches so as an actor you're not in control of your performance you do bits you give it to the director he'll choose the which choices out of all the takes that you've done and put it together and at the end of the day, then you'll see the finished product and you'll see the finished product in context in the story. So once it's the first time, it's the last time, really, you'll, you'll have seen it when you read the script in your head. Then you see it in reality. And very often it is very different from what you intended choice wise. And also mm. you have to get over the really impossible thing of you just aren't what you think you are. Hmm. And I think it takes a huge level of self-acceptance, plus the fact once you've got over yourself and go like, well, whatever, this is I can't do much about it. This is what I am and this is what I've done. Then you can make different choices and go, well, OK, so they've chosen that and that's the arc of the story. I can do a different inflection on that or I can do if there was a line that had a potential laugh. That's your time when you can go in and do it again because it's you finally see the context and context is everything. So I now force myself to watch it so that I know that I can improve it and do myself justice. And I come, it's a ridiculous process and I go down an abyss and uh, a vortex and then I come through it. But the, the amount of time spent in the vortex is lessened as I've gotten older. Wow. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> It's fascinating, but also it links to what you're saying about your SDP and also being scattered and also honing your craft and the challenge psychologically and emotionally of doing something that really you have to put your, your skill out there, but be at the mercy of other people of what they what they make of it. Yeah. And you have to trust. And what sounds fascinating actually and is similar to mini driver is that you recognize you go down a hole mm -hmm. but you are quicker 
are getting yourself up out of it, that somehow the years of building muscle and kind of recognising, oh, this is the hole. Yeah. It's not that you're never going to go down there. And I think all of us know that we're going to go down that damn hole, but it's knowing what gets you out there. But the thing that's pinging in my head is I had this idea that acting gave you a route and a persona and so that that felt coherent. But what you're describing isn't that at all. Mm. It's coherent when I'm doing it. It's coherent and gives me a route and a wonderful map when I've just got the job, when I've got all the ideas, when I'm mapping it out. The One of the great joys in life for me is opportunity, the sense of possibility. Oh, I could do this and that and that. That gives me a real buzz. Then doing it, the play with people, once you've gotten over the first day nerves or the nerves, which one always has, um, because you've never played the same part twice. That's the other thing. And then you've never, well, it depends. Maybe you have worked with the same people, but there's always nerves to deal with. And then when you, I mean, I love walking around wearing somebody else. In life. I mean, I'll take them for a walk. Unfortunately, and, you know, much to the irritation of those who live with me, I'll if I'm, I've got an accent, the accent comes with me. And it's fun. And it's really, it's playful. I've, I just played a German. So the German accent was really, it was so fun because it had a sensuality. And I'm doing it wrong. But it really... It brings out a different person and it's play. Version of you. It's a different version. Yeah. And we have multitudes in ourselves. That's it. We, I love that, whoever said that. We contain multitudes. Yes, I love that. I love that. And I, I also use that with dress. It's like I love dressing up because I think we can yeah. become many, many different things. We are different people depending on who we are. I don't mean in a schizophrenic or multiple personality way, but we have all these different sides. And putting them on and playing with them is the antidote to, you know, death. <laughs> Seriousness of life. You know. It's like being alive, isn't it? Yeah. We've got to choose life. And it's like the lip on the side of life. And ultimately, um, you've got to not take yourself so seriously. Or it. I mean, you can. Obviously, when you're in pain, there's no choice. It's not about taking things seriously. But if you can still play and have a laugh with somebody else. I love that. The other thing that really helps me is that the shortest distance between two people is laughter. And I really, it's not sex. I think it's laughter. And that... I love that. Yeah. Oh my God, that's good. So if you have the potential for that, that's what it's about. So you've got to do things to play. You've got to instill reasons to play and not take your self so personally I think I mean I love what you're saying in the sort of freedom of it yeah and in the vivacity and the kind of energy of being alive like letting yourself be a different person today by the lipstick you're wearing or the shirt you put on or the jewelry or the accent and that that is exciting and playful and creative and I think one of the terrible things of lockdown and then all this ghastly politics is that we've forgotten how to have fun we've forgotten how to play we none of us have enough play no we're constantly sort of doom scrolling and miserable and so I love the idea of connection is closest through laughter not sex yeah <laughs> my stage of life is probably more likely frankly <laughs> I think I think we that's definitely I mean I think sex is overrated but that might say a lot about my sex but <laughs> <laughs> but um you're very sexy Helena Let oh thanks so you Julia actually bit of a girl crush going on but um yeah very mutual yeah so nice well <laughs> hey you're married aren't you yeah so am I virtually I am married yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah. anyway we can love lots of people that's the other thing which I've always believed in but and play with having a crush of course. Like it's playful. It is playful and it's it's a play of energy and laugh and constructing sentences and construct and making things together. Any kind of that kind of relationship. It's like building blocks, but doing it with sentences or thoughts. I think we're so overloaded with responsibilities. You know, the one good thing about COVID was the press, pressing the pause. So we all had time 
to not answer 7,000 emails. We, you know, the barrage of life stopped, I felt, for me. I was safe. I had my home. No one was ill. We could cope. And then, so I had the luxury of enjoying the fact that the world had stopped. Mm. So the inbox stopped. Then that thing, you know, the totally ridiculous thing about being an actor is you might not be in work, but you can see other people working. And for once, none of us are working. <laughs> so it was like... There's no envy. And no envy. Shit, I hate that she's got that part. Yeah. yeah. There's no feeling of threatened by other people. It's very, very dangerous as a profession because you can put your whole self-esteem in the hands of other people's success if you're not careful. I'm going to interrupt our conversation for a message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel uneasy, whether it's a career change, loss of a loved one, or a new relationship. Our emotions can certainly leave us feeling overwhelmed. As a psychotherapist, I'm all about finding solutions, but it can certainly be tough to work them out on your own. Therapists are trained to help you get to the root of your emotions, and can help you build productive coping mechanisms. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's not only affordable, but can be done in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. So how do you hold on to your core self and your confidence and who you are internally, given that all we've talked about of the different roles you can inhabit, the projections put onto you, what you've, what's been carried down to you from your parents and your grandparents, maybe your great grandparents. I think one of the great difficulties in life is finding how to stabilize oneself with the sense of, this is the core aspects of me that I, I can rely on, that regulate me, that keep me, sort of connected with myself and alive, but also alive energetically rather than terrified all the time. <laughs> cowering under the I think it changes from day to day and I think it's very interesting how quick a sense of confidence can vanish I was talking about it with a really high achieving friend who was sort of saying oh I haven't done much with my life and and, and his his trials but you've done so much and you're like it's that sense of satisfaction or confidence just evaporates very very quickly yeah so true it is. But the thing is, you know, I have a lot of compartments in my life. So I'm not just an actor. That's the other big challenge is how do you balance all the roles? So I'm a mum mm. to two very different individuals. I'm a daughter. I'm really good at that. I will say that. Are you? That's a lovely thing to be. Yeah, I think I get that. I think I really won't. And that's another thing. That's the big ask of you. I want to ask you about the big challenge. Okay. I have friends who have really put up with the fact that I've had to vanish for times in my life because when I become somebody else or go off on a job, it is all consuming. But they patiently wait for me to come back. I have a boyfriend. This is not the list of priority on the list of priorities. And now I'm doing things for charity. I think I've always been quite eclectic. And I'm very aware of not to pigeonhole myself. And ultimately, it's listening to the shitty committee. If my shitty committee really gets nasty, like the other day when I was dealing with watching myself in this latest programme, I started to sing out loud what they were saying. And that was a really good antidote. Like, oh, my God, yes, you're 56. Yes, the face is sagging. Oh, my God, it's changing. Yes, you're getting old. You're hideous. You know, it just... And I think the sound man, because I did it in the sound studio, was just looking at me like as if I was completely... And I said, yes, I'm mad. It doesn't really matter. But this is what I carry inside. And he said, you? I said, every single person who walks this earth carries a shitty committee. But I am trying to introduce this notion to my amazingly clever 
stunning daughter who has a very mm. hyperactive inner critic. I'm trying to point out that what that inner critic says is not fact. No. Feelings are not facts. Yeah. Feelings are not facts. So my, my CBT course really helped that. But now, practical things that help, singing it out. Yeah. So it's not hidden in shame and grows in that horrible topsy way that shame does in silence. Well, it can grow in all sorts. So get it out. You've got to spit it out. I went through a very painful divorce. But the way I cope with that was that I just got A4. I've got one here. You know, just a page of A4 paper. Shame. I mean, I bought, I don't know, 500 of them because it was a long lasting thing. Divorce does not, that's the other thing is it's not that finite. Never ends. It never ends. And even if you divorce somebody, the marriage, it's a kind of marriage. It's you're still with, as if you have children with them, the relationship has to change. So, um, and it's not just them, of course. And it's interesting how the anatomy of a divorce and how many different grieves are, which had never occurred to me before until I did it but what it does to your inside and what you have to grieve and what you have to lose and say goodbye to yeah so many levels and layers and identities identities dreams of a family the future whatever you've attached to being you as a matriarch if it is or you as the uh, with your team, with your family. Yeah. And then also what you are in relationship to groups of friends and the world in the family. It impacts the entire family. Yeah. Also how people don't necessarily know how to treat you. I think there's a lot of things that we should just need to tell people out there when dealing with people. If you're in any kind of grief, either divorce or losing somebody, you talk about it. You don't avoid it. You don't you know, you face it and you name it. The person who's in grief is consumed by that person, whether they're leaving them or whether they're gone. Mm. And they exist and you have to meet them, bring that person into the space and talk about it. And if also I'll just put it out there because it really came a cropper in my with some people when in our divorce that sometimes family, you know, friends don't know what to do. And they don't, you know, there's a split loyalty. And Mm. if you were worried about hurting somebody, contact both sides and just check in and say, would you mind if I saw? Just always respect what they had, even if it's in your view, the past, or even if in your view, it wasn't a good thing anyway. It doesn't matter. The divorce and the, the previous relationship and that person was theirs. And part of the grieving is letting go. And it takes a longer time than people expect. Much, much longer. Or than you want either. You want to be over it. Like, get on with your life. You want to be over it. I think sometimes people were bored, frankly, of how long I moaned on about it. And um, I said, look, I don't want to be... I'm bored by my own feelings. But it it is really, really all-consuming and you can be very very selfish when you're in pain because it's so consuming you can't you don't think of other people's but literally because it's congest taking your every cell of your being processing it and it is a huge change what else helped you when, when you're in pain i wrote it wrote i just literally wrote i just wrote and wrote and wrote not to be read by anyone i wrote it i've got i still got a drawer full of it i just draw vomit it out it's a good idea I spoke to people who've been it. Always find the tribe, you know, who've been through it. Yeah. They'll show you the way That's through the dark. Idea. There's always people who've done, mm. have been through it before. You know, there's a general rule for life. When you're young, you think I'm so unique and special and no one knows what I feel. And you go like, I'm sorry to tell you, but we're all basically unoriginal. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have our own subjective experience, but... Divorce, talking to other people, what they've gone through normalises the madness or the desperation that you feel. Or, and it can also give you advice about what to do with friends. What to do with friends. Also the children. It's a very complicated thing, how to share the children, all those patterns. And also the knowledge, which I can tell now people who are going through it, and I'm now five, I mean, I'm years down the line, that it gets so much easier. And it's that thing of, it gets easier. But I, I do think, 
It changes. It changes. The changes. One thing I would bring back, which I found enormously hard, and again, it was exacerbated by being well-known, is that I couldn't walk around going, I kept on wanting to say, I want to be in black. I want to wear something to indicate to people that I'm not my normal self. I'm in mourning. Yeah. I'm in mourning and I'm under reconstruction. I, my scaffolding has, well, I've got no scaffolding sometimes. I was just like, just gone. But until I've fallen apart, I won't be able to rebuild. So don't expect anything, frankly, of me, because I can't take anything. I, I found in the process there was a lot of just disintegration. My brain couldn't make decisions because yeah. it was so congested with, I think, just processing. It's exhausting. Preoccupation. But also the, the part of the what you're saying is in some ways that the breakdown is the breakthrough, but you can't make it faster. You can't press fast forward you have to it's a painful disorienting what's the word you're saying is that you feel like you're breaking inside you break you it's a fragmentation total fragmentation and it's very scary and the landscape is very very desolate and you feel very very alone and i'd only say to people who and i you know i'll go through it again no doubt when somebody dies but the only thing that I can say of help, I've been always taught, is like is the short view thing. You know, we have to try and just do the next minute. Yeah, keep it in the day. Keep it in the day and that it's not um, real insight to human existence, isn't it? When one does and one will get stronger and you'll come together very much better, I do think. It's not a comfort because it's a fucker. And being public figure made it worse because you wanted to wear black and look awful, but somehow because you were recognised, you couldn't. I think wandering around and um, being looked at, most of the time I can take it because it it's like whatever. I can wear a veil, as it were. Not literally a veil, but I mean, I just like... Psychologically. Psychologically, I realise, again, it's that thing. It's not really anything to do with me. You know, I privately have joy playing different people. The... The side benefit is the fame thing. That's something that I deal with. And it's and it's of great benefit many times. And a lot of the time it's of complete pain. And it's a pain when you are not, when you are very vulnerable. I remember doing the school gate and feeling I was so vulnerable. And I couldn't oh. obviously meeting friends was fine. My my best friends, but not people I don't really know. No, because you're raw and exposed. It was like I had not no skin. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but that's when I say, not because I wanted to wear black, but I think we should, that's something that, you know, the Victorians had. We should have, you know, we should bring back um, a uniform for mourning because it gives an indication to people that you aren't yourself and nor should you be yourself. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's it's called, I think I've got a thing with Alice saying, I'm not myself. I can't explain myself because I'm not myself. I like that. Yeah. And it and it sort of says, look, guys, because I think we still have trouble admitting vulnerability and, and there's a judgment about it and we should be strong. And there's a real legacy of the British stiff upper lip. And it's like we have to honour and respect loss and, in fact, not wear it as a badge, but have um, more protection or more or honour it more you know, in our society, and press pause. The time when you really need to have a sort of lockdown after a death, just to let yourself heal. And space, space in which to compute it. And with birth, too. I've had a relative who's just had a baby, go like, you've no idea the shock of having a birth. Yeah. For me, with, with death and birth, and if I lost my dad very quickly after I had Bill, it was also he was amazing because he he my dad wanted to live to when Billy was born, oh. and that was a real act of generosity. But they're both mini earthquakes to yourself, you know. That's like the tectonic plates go flying up, and then and then you have to just wait till they come down to start walking. And I think people try to run way before it's sensible. It's quite interesting that. A lot of the parts you play go back in time. And psychologically, I mean, we can't fully know what life was like then, we can imagine. No. 
But I think there is something about the speed of 21st century life that expects you to keep going and the kind of 24-7 news and your emails and the pressure and all of those things and being able to get to places. Their t life was just slower. Of course, there was more death because children died when basically you got ill, you died yeah. because there was no medicine. But there's something about the slower pace of life honours these big life events of birth and death and separation and moving house or all the different types of losses because we need to slow down in order to allow ourselves to feel and to be able to Absolutely. allow that to come through our system. And as it does that, it allows us to change and adapt to our new circumstance. But this chop, chop, get on with it, push forward, push forward is is a real illness and really bad for our mental health. I think it's really bad for our mental health and our physical health. And I think it's sometimes impossible. I do go to work to escape because the barrage of decisions that I, I meant to, I meant to make. But then to quote my guru mother, she said, one rule is don't ever do anything today that you can postpone till tomorrow. You know. <laughs> that is the opposite, isn't it, of everybody else? But it's genius, isn't it? It is actually the way to survive. Postpone. Don't do anything today that you can do tomorrow. <laughs> that is... Yeah, yeah. So listen, we are coming to the end, very unfortunately. And I'm going to make a request which may not be possible. Mm -hmm. But I would love to talk to you about your the challenge that you kind of just slipped in momentarily, which was about your mum. Yeah. Which we haven't even touched no. on, but we couldn't start now because I think it's there's a lot there. So maybe we could have a part two at some point. I'd love a part two. That's the my life is haunted by the potential loss. Not potential, it's obviously going to happen. But the loss of my mum. I've lost my father, but every grief is different for obvious reasons. So I wanted to know from you, and maybe we, we postpone it, is there anything that we can do to prepare for death of somebody with their agreement? <laughs> yes, is there anything that we can do to prepare for them to make a good death? And for our own selves, is there anything I could do to help myself survive life after? It's a big one. I'd like to have a part two, but yeah. I can give you a short. I can give you a short answer. Great, I've got my notepad. Hang on. Yes, Guru. <laughs> Listen, I'm just trying this out. This may yeah, yeah. not work. Okay, okay, okay. But the fact that you're thinking about it already, that that is part of your consciousness, is the first step to preparing. So it's not mm -hmm. like you're in blissful ignorance. This isn't going to happen. So you are, I imagine when you go and see your beloved mum, you're kind of aware, maybe this time I've only got 50 more of these visits to do. You know, you're aware that time is narrowing, that her, yeah. her life on earth is shorter. And I mean, the first thing, which I'm sure she and you have already have, is to have any of the conversations that are important to have, that you don't have regrets, whether that's to do with your relationship in the past, whether that's to do with actual pra practical plans, like what does she want for her funeral? Does she want to be on a, on a life support machine? Does she have end of life planning and advanced wishes? Those practical things. Mm -hmm. um, and do that possibly with your two brothers. Yeah. Because I think after a parent's died, that wish that kind of wondering what would mum want you know and yeah. one says well she said to me this and the other one says she she said to me yeah, that yeah. and that's conflicted so that if you can have that collaboratively together yeah. that really helps that's a good that's a good tip and the other one is being present which I think you really are in the moments that you have with her and really cherish them and embrace them and create opportunities because in the end all you will have is those memories and they will be your treasure trove to go back and revisit after she's died. Mm -hmm. And they will resource you in the same way as your dad is still very present in you and you can remember the conversations you had before he died when Billy was born. Mm -hmm. Although your relationship with your mum, I imagine, because she's a mother and not a father, is very different. When you're with her, like make sure you have the conversations that will 
nurture you and allow you to feel close and loving to her because as you know the love for her won't die no and then the the final piece in this short bit is basically you can do these things and at the moment of death you're never prepared it is always a shock you can have be told two hours before someone is going to die that they're going to die by the end of the day or whatever it is mm. and still that moment when they stop breathing is yeah. like it is just unbelievably shocking that's my short version thank you but we can go into each of those long form i'd love to it's another long one was like i wanted to know how you got so involved with death i can tell you that it's from my childhood obviously oh really i mean i wasn't bereaved but lots of people my parents were very significantly bereaved did they lose their parents um, or so my mum, by the time she was 25, she was an orphan. Her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. And my father, his father and his brother. And they never talked about any of them. How extraordinary. My uncle was killed in the war. Um, my grandmother was an alcoholic. My mum was an alcoholic. So there was, there's a lot. But I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. No, that's... What a legacy. Yeah. Well done. I have loved this conversation, Helena. No, me Thank too. Thank you so much. I really feel there was so much that you've obviously thought about that has sort of come out, but it does feel like as it's coming out, you're understanding yourself better and more with more clarity. And one of the things I would say back to you is that you, ha you say this about yourself, that you're scattered or disorganised. And my response to you is that you have much more kind of centred wisdom and grounded sense of self than you probably recognise. Mm. I think that's my father. I mean, I'm made of both. Yeah. And I'm also, I don't know if you believe in all that, but I do find it has uncanny astrologically. Um, yeah. I'm a Gemini. So I have mm. this Gemini... Um, I've got a, a knee-jerk reaction to get, to have lots of, well, we all have millions of ideas occur. I think also post-menopausal, the brain changes. Definitely changes. And, you know, my brain has definitely changed since I've had the menopause and during the menopause. That's a whole other challenge. And that's the other thing that I think I've learned is that every decade is a different learning lesson. You know, I'm doing my 50s now. And the challenges now are obviously completely different from when they were 40s. And we've never done this age before unless we really have lived before. You know, so it's um everything's new. Well, I wanted... But do you feel a sense of knowing yourself and well-being and optimism in your 50s than you did? Definitely, because I've gotten yeah. to know myself. Yeah, I've gotten to know how to live with myself and not take myself, not be my, not have myself take up so much time. Yeah, give yourself a break. Like You know, it's just pushing away. Give myself a break. It's like, oh, just whatever. Get over yourself. And then... Be, and open to the world, you know. And play. And play. And experiment and taste and explore and ask. And I do love people. That's why I act. Is I'm curious about how people yeah. put together. And I don't think it's a million miles away from my mother's psychotherapist. So in some no. ways, I deconstruct people. And I'm always interested in playing ill people, actually. And I didn't realise that until I suddenly thought, oh, that's... So I always go like, well, how did they become this way? How do people? And then I deconstruct that. So it was that sort of story. So, no, it's sort of as, as you get older, I think you get more used to yourself and then it opens up the possibility of actually being alive and living. Yeah. And having fun, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> and laugh. <laughs> That's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so, so much. Oh, my pleasure. Any time, Julia. Any time. And again, thank you for everything. What Enjoy. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. 
I thought it was a really interesting conversation, I must say. There was so much wisdom and psychological insight, as well as a joyous one. What were your first thoughts? I really love how she uses words as like little phrases that she hears or little poems that are like nuggets that she has around in her life that centre her. There's something about poetry or sort of really beautifully written words that I think are really good at grounding us when we find something that means something to us and can use it as a way to just recenter ourselves. Like they become those touchstones that they're like they're a shortcut to the deeper meaning. Because there was a lot about that existential questions that seemed to come up for her about what's the point? Why are we here? And that some of those more spiritual or more poetic words capture that so much more like, I really loved It Is Our Task to Make Music of What Remains, like, ones like that that she spoke about that get to the heart of some of those existential questions, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Like, a, this is me. <laughs> this is what I really feel in a bigger picture sense. And this reminds me of that when I'm spiralling or anxious or whatever the emotion is. So I loved that. But also I was impressed that as an eight-year-old, she made that decision that still influences her, that she wouldn't let the difficult events defeat her and then came up with that phrase, make music of what remains. Yes, I mean, very impressive. It's a good reminder that eight-year-olds are more astute and sensitive and aware than I think sometimes we like to think. And obviously she was a particularly self-analytical thoughtful eight-year-old but I do think most eight-year-olds are more aware and sort of self-reflective than sometimes we maybe give them credit for. Yeah no I think that is a really good point. I agree with this concept that we are a multiplicity of beings and how it helps us to choose life and joy and not take ourselves too seriously. So it links to the thing of making music of what remains, but also really choosing life and joy, actively choosing life and joy. And that idea that the shortest distance between two people is laughter, which is linked to all of that. Like if you laugh at yourself and you're laughing with someone, that that is a really life-enhancing attitude. Absolutely. And the importance of play. It made me think of, you know, obviously I'm a child psychotherapist. We studied a lot of Winnicott. <laughs> and everything for him is about play. Like if you can't play, basically you can't be creative. You can't live. You can't live a full yeah. life. And the, all those things that you were talking about are ways of playing, like playing with who you are and exploring all the different aspects of yourself through play. And yeah, I just totally agreed with that too. I, yeah, it made me think about this, this sort of paradox, isn't there, that we need to, to sort of hold. That on the one hand, it's really helpful and healthy to not take yourself too seriously, to not have to be special, to just be normal. And that sort of perspective piece where you're this one part of this massive universe and we're all interconnected. And it's like those moments when you stand atop the mountain, it's such a relief not to be at the centre of it and to be able to play around with who you are and, and not take yourself too seriously. And at the same time, hold the equally important truth that we're all worthy of being loved. It's sort of your birthright to be worthy and to be, and for that to be of value. The paradox of both not taking yourself too seriously and being loved and being worthy being your birthright. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I also think that the idea of play is not necessarily about not taking yourself seriously I, I think it's about exploring different parts of yourself mm. and exploring the dark side and the light side and all of these different aspects and enjoying that and that's sort of the way to live life most fully so to me it doesn't mean that you're not taking it seriously it's just a way of exploration I guess of different parts of yourself mm. also those parts make space for for when you have that, she called it her self-destructive part. Mum, you call it the shitty committee. Like when you ha have that concept of multiplicity, says there's room for other parts to come in. It doesn't get to have the whole stranglehold of your whole life. Oh, I love that. It's one part. Also, have this other part, and then that helps move between rather than that being everything. And the thing I take generally from it, and I think particularly during the pandemic and post-pandemic, is that because we haven't been socialising, we, as a nation, I think, and maybe globally, we haven't had enough fun. There hasn't been enough fun. And we haven't sort of played enough and listened 
to music outside with people and played ball in the park with friends and young people snogging in the park or all the stuff, the play and the experimentation. I don't know. It just feels like life has been so serious and life-threatening. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you can sort of use play or creativity like you don't even have to do something as big as going to a concert or do anything. I think it's so easy to get caught up in the things that we have to do and not do enough of the things that we enjoy doing. And I notice it when I'm around my children all the time. Like they want me to be fun. And I'm like, yeah, but I need to like do all this stuff. And trying to find a balance of like little 10 minute nuggets where we do like in our house, we do a lot of like kitchen dance parties where we just put the music on really loud and jump around. And it doesn't take very long, but it's just sort of adding the things that you want to do and have fun doing into like all the endless boring stuff that you have to do. Little pockets of joy. Yeah. And also that it's such an antidote to fear. You can't really be jumping around the kitchen and singing and wiggling or making funny faces and be afraid at the same time. And I think we've all been so fearful, haven't we, this kind of threatening heaviness. And you and Dad were always great about that. You were always very capable of being very silly. Yes, and still are. (laughs) And still are. And, you know, in terms of channeling things, she talks about challenging things from your parents and your grandparents. I was like, I thought of the Gima, your mum. And I thought irreverence and play... For all her other many complications, the irreverence and play was really a great one that she'd passed down. And actually, although I I find it sort of hard to listen to that you are going to listen to, we, Helena and I had that moment of play with each other, of fangirling each other and saying that we were both attractive and sort of giggling. And it was was very heart expanding having moments like that and that one can have that with anyone really and it just makes your day and it isn't a big thing and it isn't complicated it's just a moment of playful connection I guess yeah I think connection connection is the word isn't it and I think judgment is one of the things that kills play (laughs) like so that's what I did when I listened to it is I judged like oh and she was talking about the thing of sort of being famous and having to sort of deal with the judgment of everybody and how much it's not about her. That's so interesting, yeah. And then you talked a bit about social media, didn't you? And I was like, oh, it's almost now that everyone is a little bit famous. You know, like everyone is suddenly exposed to that medium of being judged and watched all the time and how much harder it is to play and be silly and it's because it's such a killer to feel like someone's judging you. Except you, Soph. You're not on any social media. I have WhatsApp. That is not social media. <laughs> Just FYI. No, so. <laughs> so that is a little moment of play between us, which is sweet. The final thing I was thinking about is how I've been on a campaign for us to wear black for when we're grieving for about six years. And I went to the co-op funeral directors. I went to every kind of funeral organisation to try and encourage this, our society to wear a black armband or to in some way represent that they're grieving so that when you're in Sainsbury's and you've forgotten your purse or you burst into tears or you can't park, that people will have see the black armband and know, look, she's having, this is, this is she's painful. And you can pop the black armband in your handbag or your pocket if you don't want people to know. And I do love that idea generally of dressing for your mood or dressing for your day. And that, again, it's a way of having multiplicity of yourselves and that when you're grieving you really want people to be gentle with you I mean she was grieving her marriage and so that we can have this acknowledgement in society that is a signal that is visible because what everyone is feeling is so invisible I completely agree I've always wished that you could have a sort of traffic light system above your head where you could just like ping like green I'm feeling good like it's fine you can chat to me or like yellow like just be a bit careful like red like okay very vulnerable right now just keep your distance or just be very gentle (laughs) like have ways of communicating without having to say what is going on for you particularly I think around bereavement I, I think it would be amazing I'm I'm sad it didn't take off yet and but maybe um that traffic signal is something that people can have in their families if we're creative is there a, a version of that that everyone a family could create so everybody knows what's going on without having to go into le- lengthy explanations have like code language 
Yeah, I think so. I definitely sometimes with children who find it hard to say when they need something, often I have them develop like a little code with a parent where it's like really subtle, but not so subtle you wouldn't notice. <laughs> like if you need something, tap your nose and mommy will see or daddy will see or whoever will see that you need something. Oh, nice. Without having to say, I need something. So it's not quite as thorough as a traffic light system, but it is a way of communicating need when words are hard. That's lovely. I love that. Thank you, my angels. That was so interesting, but we have to end it there. And a particular thank you to Helena for the most extraordinary podcast. I am so grateful to her. And for you, our listeners, if you have family, friends or colleagues that you think would benefit from this podcast, do please share the link. And remember to subscribe, rate and review so more people have the opportunity to find it. Thank you so much. Till next week. Bye. Bye.